0: All right, you might kill me for this one. Question number eight: Who will win the U.S. presidential election?
1: Well, as of today, with all the disclaimers in place, it looks to me like it's uh, a
0: really an uphill battle. That was Dr. Christopher Smart, head of the Bearings Investment Institute, and this is Streaming Income, a podcast from Bearings. I'm your host, Greg Campion. And I'd like to welcome you to episode 15 of season two of Streaming Income. Throughout the season, we'll be bringing you in-depth conversations with experts on asset classes like EM Debt, High Yield, Real Estate, and more. Remember, if you'd like to receive our latest insights as soon as they become available, you can subscribe to the show by searching Streaming Income on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. So on today's show, I spoke with Dr. Christopher Smart head of the Bearings Investment Institute, and chief global strategist at Bearings. We focused our discussion on the second half outlook for markets and how economics and politics may play a role. Thanks to our listeners and our social media followers for your views on topics to cover. We used your input as a guide for this discussion. So in the conversation, we talked about the S&P 500's best quarter in 20 years and whether or not the pieces are in place for that to potentially continue. We discussed the structural reforms taking place in Europe and whether or not the continent may take advantage of this crisis when it's all said and done. We covered the U.S.-China relationship and its many moving parts, including which may impact markets in the second half of this year. We also talked about the U.S. election, how it may play out, and what that means for markets. And finally, I put Christopher on the spot with 10 rapid fire questions that he did not receive in advance, but thankfully he was a very good sport about. So thank you to Christopher for that. With that, please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Christopher Smart. All right, Christopher Smart, welcome back to Streaming Income. Thanks very much. My pleasure to be here. Thank you for Zooming in this morning from, is it uh, New Hampshire? Is that where you're currently yeah, located? New Hampshire,
1: exactly right.
0: Fantastic, fantastic. I'm a little bit jealous having uh, grown up in New England. I usually most of the year being here in North Carolina is just fine, but there's about two months out of the year where I do pine for the, the cool nights of, of a New Hampshire summer.
1: Well, and we're, we're of course very excited about the, the baseball season getting underway at long last.
0: Absolutely. Okay. So I want to just explain to our listeners, we're going to do something a little bit differently here today. So we are going to be uh, talking about the outlook for the second half of 2020 uh, from an economic perspective, from a political perspective, a little bit from a markets perspective. And heading into this, uh, we did something a little different. We asked for our listeners and our uh, social media followers to give us some input. If you listen to the last uh, episode of Streaming Income, I asked uh, listeners at the end to submit questions. And then on social media, we did a poll and give people four choices So, uh, for topics to talk about. So we gave people four choices, and I will just run through those from uh, least popular to most popular. So The least popular topic, but still getting 13% of the vote. So people still want to hear about Europe's surprising progress. I want to hear about that one very much as well. 14%, so just a bit more wanted to hear about fresh US-China skirmishes. Uh, Obviously something that we came into this year talking a lot about. Uh, Maybe it's been a little bit on the back burner given the pandemic, but that's still obviously a, a very important issue. And then thirdly, and uh, getting almost a third of the votes, so 29%, people want to hear about the best S&P 500 quarter in 20 years. Obviously, quite a topic for discussion. And then last, in garnering the most votes, 44% wanted to hear about the quote-unquote irrelevant U.S. election. And it may just be that spicy title of yours, Christopher, that that really drew people in because we're hearing this election called a lot of things Irrelevant is not one of them. So we definitely want to understand what you're saying there. So with that as an intro, let's dive in. And I suggest we start with the S&P question um, because it may help to explain how we got here. So tell me, what have we seen year to date? And especially in the last quarter, why did we see one of the best quarters in in 20 years? Well, it's been quite a year
1: and it's been quite a quarter. And I think disorienting for many of us in a lot of ways, uh, not just in terms of new work patterns, but in new ways of trying to analyze markets, uh, economic data, which has been very extreme in a lot of different directions. And I think that um, has been head-scratching for many investors. On the one hand, they have to measure the extent of the damage caused by the coronavirus and the lockdowns that have been ordered by governments around the world and measure that against the enormous government response, both on the fiscal side and the monetary side, really around the world. China, the US, Europe, both central banks and governments have responded in unprecedented ways. So if you're an investor looking at the hole that's been created by the virus, you're also trying to understand how much that hole has been repaired by the government response And not so much repaired, but, you know, can it tide us over as we move to recovery as these lockdowns end and as economic activity returns in certain sectors, we try to peer through to the world beyond and we try to understand uh, just how quickly we'll be getting back to something approaching normal. I don't think anybody expects us to be back to full capacity of January of this year anytime soon. But uh, there's a long way between where we were in March, which was a complete shutdown in most of the United States, or at least the northeast of the United States, and where we will go before the end of the year. Just very quickly, on, on, the, on the S&P itself, what I think has been remarkable is I don't think anybody would have put money on the best quarter since 1998, I think, on record. But it has been a world in which the Fed very quickly came in and backstopped a lot of the most important debt markets and the equity markets followed right along. The other dynamic I think we're following right now is analysts have been slashing their earnings forecasts for this year, but very difficult for them to know, know quite how quickly the recovery will come through because there's been almost no guidance from companies themselves. So I think that has led to a lot of immediate sell-off but also explains a lot of the resurgence and people worried about valuations being excessive, but I think that's because again analysts' expectations and analyst forecasts have yet to catch up with what is the new reality coming into view
0: yeah yeah it's 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 a very difficult task i think trying to trying to assess the the value of the current market right now when when the earnings estimates are such a, a moving target and really depends so much, I would imagine, on, on what happens with the virus. Um, I mean, one of the, I think, biggest issues that investors have been grappling with and trying to get their arms around is this divergence between, quote unquote, Wall Street and Main Street, right? That markets have continued to rally, but the headlines that you're seeing every day on resurgence of the virus in all sorts of areas uh, would have you believing maybe the opposite would happen. So I understand that this is, or I think the narrative is that this is explained by the central bank liquidity that's been pumped into the system and essentially the Fed and other central bank programs doing their job. But I mean, I guess my question for you would be, at some point, you need to come back to pricing the market based on fundamentals rather than based on technicals, which I would argue that's what the the Fed stimulus and other central bank stimulus are. So do you have any way to gauge or, or is there anything in history that we can look back to, to sort of guide us to how this ultimately unwinds and maybe investors start to value stocks and bonds based on fundamentals again, as opposed to technicals?
1: I think it's really hard to find a historical precedent that helps here. But I think it is important to understand the difference between technicals that may be driving the market and fundamentals, which I think are beginning to show through in some of the market activity. What we've seen, I think, increasingly over the last few weeks is what I like to call the uh, there's a pandemic put uh, in the mind of most investors. And by that, I mean, there is a sense that either the economy is recovering and opening up again, uh, which is good news or the economy is facing secondary shocks of coronavirus outbreaks, which will lead to more government fiscal response, more longer Fed easing, which is also good news. So I think that has been part of the dynamic through much of the spring and early summer. What I think you're seeing now though is some greater differentiation. It's not as if everything is going up right now. Over the last month you've seen Technology stocks continue to do well. You've seen copper stocks surprisingly maybe do do well there. Meanwhile, things like hotels, anything to do with travel and leisure have faced uh, setbacks because of these second waves, I think. So you'll begin to see some greater differentiation, I think, as the weeks and months progress and investors are going to have to do some hard work and sharpen their pencils to make sure that the forecast they have for each individual company Each individual sector really makes sense as as the macro data comes into view. In terms of valuations, I think there's a lot of concern because the S&P is now trading, I think, at low 20s multiples of earnings, which is historically very high. Again, I think those earnings are going to come back very quickly. People aren't really concerned about this year's earnings, which they know will be bad, but they're really trying to get a sense on what next year's earnings will look like. The other thing to keep in mind is we've got bond yields at historic lows. And when investors are making a choice between a very reliable but low-yielding fixed-income instrument and their time horizon can see through to a world where there is a vaccine, where life is back to, again, something closer to normal, Maybe even better at some point in time, given the fiscal support we've had. Um, I think that is what is driving markets right now. So I think you know it's not it's not necessarily right to say that fundamentals have been thrown out the window. I think people are keeping some of those things in mind as they make their choices.
0: That that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think that point around performance not being uniform is a really good one to keep in mind, right? So even if you look at the S and P versus NASDAQ to to date, right? S&P down roughly 2% as we uh, record this in the second week of July, NASDAQ up 17% year to date, amazingly. Um, So clearly tech has led the way, but at the same time, we're all looking at our screens and seeing JCPenney bankrupt, Hertz bankrupt, uh, just announced Brooks Brothers bankrupt, right? So like um, some more of these more uh, traditional economy, or or basically just companies that are really caught in the crosshairs of what's going on are really, really struggling. So uh, I think your point around that and, and the fact that there are winners and losers is a really good one. And uh, again, I would also echo your point on, the, uh, on, on fixed income, and I think that's one of the reasons why we've seen inflows into high-yield bonds, for instance, where if you can get comfortable that... A lot of these companies will have the financing to bridge what is maybe a short to medium term problem, Um, then you might be more willing to go down that credit spectrum to pick up incremental yield at a time when, as you say, rates are so low.
1: And you're seeing that differentiation, not just within the United States, but around the world, China obviously went into this crisis first and came out first, and their market is up in the mid-teens right now. Europe is still lagging in many ways, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But um, I think their equity market has not done as well as the US. The the Japanese market is somewhere in between. And I think in different emerging markets, you've got very different pictures. And I think that's why, again, the second quarter story was one of a very sharp sell-off and a very sharp recovery. And now it's going to be a much more differentiated picture across geographic areas and across uh, sectors.
0: So let's talk about Europe. So you've mentioned to me in the past that 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 Europe is is making some surprising progress or has the potential to make some surprising progress uh, against all odds. So what what do you mean by that exactly?
1: Well, it's Europe in my mind is you know never as great as everybody says it is, and it's never as awful as everybody says it is. Um, what I think is true, and we've seen again and again in Europe, is that in the face of a crisis, in the face of disaster, European leaders find a way of strengthening their institutions on the margin and moving their story forward. And we saw that 10 years ago in the Great Crisis. We saw it you know, 20 years ago at the end of the Cold War, 30 years ago now, as you know, the, the dissolution of the Eastern Bloc led to Europe tightening, you know, tightening its institutions, launching the single currency. What we're seeing now is in the face of historic shocks to demand across Europe, importantly, the French government and the German government coming together around a plan that will, for the first time, issue joint debt uh, on behalf of European governments for actual spending. So joint debt has been issued before to pass on as loans to member states. This time, for the first time, there is a plan in place that will add up to something like 750 billion euros and that will deliver money to a variety of countries, regions, infrastructure projects, importantly, a lot of projects related to Europe's green agenda, clean energy and the like that will help boost recovery and support growth across Europe, which is something that's been in need of for many years now. But now in the face of the crisis, it looks like it will get. I don't want to get ahead of the game too quickly because there's a very important leaders meeting coming up in the next weeks that will make these decisions, we hope. But I think markets are anticipating for the first time in a long time a very important move forward by European officials.
0: That does sound like quite a bit of progress. So in terms of, you just mentioned a, an upcoming meeting, but is there anything else that's on the horizon, especially as you look toward this, the second half of this year? And I guess, would you, with your strategist hat on, would you anticipate that you know possibly European markets, whether we're looking at equities or, or fixed income markets, et cetera, would they have the potential to outperform based on some of this progress that you're mentioning?
1: Well, I think they've already recovered a lot on this news. I think there are still clearly some risks out there. Europe still has a lot of its bond markets trading at negative interest rates. It still faces some risks related to Brexit negotiations, which are not uh, yet complete. Reminder for those of you listening in, Britain has left, but its trading relationship with the EU has to be worked out before the end of this year. And there are issues still related to countries like Italy where, you know, debt is very high, growth is very low, and a lot of those things still need to come into play. But again, these are, you know, historic decisions that are being made that really structurally changes the outlook for Europe. And that I think will be reflected in markets over time.
0: Hmm. Well, let's turn to another part of the world and talk a little bit about China. So when we came into this year, and, and when we were having our 2020 outlook discussions and predictions and all that kind of stuff, which I'm I kind of shudder to go back and look at now because I don't think anybody saw this pandemic coming and, and clearly we had no idea what we were in for this year. But we talked a lot at that time about the the trade war. We talked a lot about the rise of China, its increasing prominence on the world stage, and what that means for all of the other players and what that means for economic growth and all that sort of stuff. So. Update us there in terms of what's going on, I guess, especially when it comes to the U.S.-China relationship and trade generally. Um, what, what will you be watching in the second half of this year?
1: Well, I've got to tell you, Greg, I think that's one of the things we, we were right about, we continue to be right about, and we will be right about in the <laughs> sense that the U.S.-China relationship is going to be defining for the, the world economy for years to come. And it is getting worse. And certainly the coronavirus hasn't helped those things. But what we're seeing now as, again, activity comes back to normal, old stories start coming back into the news. Uh, We're looking at not just those trade issues. Recall in January, we signed a phase one deal with China where China committed to buy a lot of US exports because demand in China has taken a hit. The Chinese are running behind in their orders. So there is a lot of questions to whether or not they will be able to fulfill the promises that they made back in January. But life has moved ahead on a whole lot of other fronts around uh, human rights, uh, developments in Hong Kong where a new national security law is in place, raising lots of concerns in the U.S. Congress. We've had more news related to China's telecom and technology firms where sanctions have been put on them and their activities, limits have been put on them, not just in the United States, but also in Europe. And we're seeing, I think, a fraying of the relationship across a variety of fronts, so that you've had the Chinese foreign minister just this week talk about how he thinks you know the relationship is worse than it has ever been since the re-establishment of diplomatic relations. So I think those are very difficult things that the two countries will have to figure out how to manage, if only on the trade front. But increasingly, I think a lot of these other issues are going to infect those relationships and you know expecting to be able to get to the core issues which are you know the imbalance of the trading relationship, China's treatment of intellectual property, China's subsidies to certain parts of its economy, those are all very important, very difficult issues that I think we're not going to resolve anytime
0: soon. That was a really great overview and thanks for that context. I mean it's it's such a complex topic and there's so many moving parts to it. Which one of those issues that you just mentioned could be the biggest one to potentially impact markets in the second half of this year?
1: I think all things being equal, the markets are sort of expecting the trade issues to linger more or less for tariffs to remain in place at current levels. But I think you know the real surprise can come over the more emotional issues. And from the U.S. point of view, that's more likely to come from something around human rights, things happening in Hong Kong. From China's perspective, there's a lot of pride in China's growth and achievements in the technology sphere. And so where we think we may just be sanctioning a boring old telecom company or boring old tech firm on the Chinese side to send a message, I think that is taken in China as the United States trying to keep China down. And I think that can lead to a reaction on their side that we might not expect. So those are the two areas I think I'd be watching.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And obviously we at Bearings have a lot of colleagues sitting in Hong Kong. It's a, a major presence for us in that in that region. So we'll all be following that with, with a lot of interest from a market standpoint, but also for just from a personal standpoint as well. And I think the important
1: thing, again, from an investor's point of view, is to follow the headlines but not overreact. Obviously, the headlines can call attention to the flashpoints. And as I pointed out, I think there's ample opportunity for any of them. But I think, for example, Hong Kong, you know, while its longer-term future, I think, remains challenged. It is still a really big city with a lot of people doing important work. It is still a very important financial center, even if the longer-term prospects look a little cloudier right now there are a lot of things that continue to go on day to day, even around some of the much noisier exchanges you get between Washington and Beijing.
0: Okay, speaking of Washington, let's turn our attention to the last of the four topics, and that is what you have deemed the irrelevant U.S. election. Christopher, please explain yourself on that (laughs) title of one of your recent pieces.
1: Well, it's, it's interesting because I think we are all overwhelmed by the political news in the United States. And if you're not in the United States, you get it anyway. And it is a noisy election. I think it is a consequential election on a variety of issues, whether it is the tone of the administration or our engagement with other countries around the world, different visions on the role of government in the economy different visions on a variety of social issues that are very important in the United States. And the volume is very, very high. I was struck, apparently, as theme parks open around the world in Japan, there is a concern that people on roller coasters will start to scream and the screaming will spread the virus. And so there was a slogan on one of the theme parks that that asks them to not scream and to scream into your heart. And I think that's what many of us in the United States feel like the last year has been. We're screaming into our hearts. But for the S&P 500, for the stock market, the political news has been irrelevant. And I think it's because, in part, the overwhelming course of the coronavirus, the damage that we discussed earlier, the government response, how it's going to affect different industries, different companies... That has been the driving narrative to the sharp sell-off and the current recovery. Secondly, what you notice is that even as Joe Biden, the Democratic nominee, I guess he's not officially the nominee yet, but that will happen, as he has been rising in the polls, the basic expectation is that Democrats will come in with more taxes and more regulation and that that's bad for earnings. And so you should have seen a sell-off by now, but that hasn't happened. And I think that's, again, because there is a sense that the overwhelming drivers have been related to the coronavirus. The other part of it is that, you know, if you look forward to next year, whether you have a President Trump or a President Biden, there could be very substantial differences in terms of where taxes are applied, where regulations are imposed or repealed. So that will affect certain companies, and that will certainly affect earnings along the way. But no one is expecting a change to the overall macroeconomic picture in the sense that the federal government isn't going to be cutting spending way back next year if a Republican is elected. It's not going to be spending a whole lot more because even if President Biden arrives into office with big plans, chances are Congress is going to restrain some of those plans. Elections are important. This is an important election. If you're a U.S. voter, please vote. But again, I don't think you see it influencing the stock market the way you might have expected it to.
0: That makes sense. And, I, and I, think, um, I think to your point, and I think as you've said before in other places, I think actually in a lot of respects in terms of policy, the two sides are not necessarily that far apart. And they, there, are, there is actually common ground in a number, a number of different issuers. Don't tell them they're not that far apart. I was going to say, despite the fact that the rhetoric is just seemingly... And, and, and
1: indeed, they are, they are actually you know, quite far apart on a number of things. But again, I think there are some surprising overlaps. For example, both now are proposing very large infrastructure spending programs. The details are very difficult. Both, I think, are going to be imposing you know, more pressure on pharmaceutical companies and price controls. Very different approaches to them, but similar kinds of goals. So I think uh, and again, the most important thing for the market for the macro economy, there will be you know very low probability of the government spending a whole lot less or taxing a whole lot more. Yeah, yeah.
0: When you and I discussed the u s. election several months ago, I think at this point when we when we talked about it on on an episode of streaming income, From memory, I think Bloomberg was still in the race. I think Yang was still in the race. I think most of the main Democratic candidates were still in the race at that point. They were hanging on. They were hanging on. I asked you then if you thought that this virus could ultimately play a role in the election. And that was, I'll have to go back and look at the date. It was probably February or maybe right at the beginning of March, something like that, where it was just becoming more clear to the world that this is a, a not a China-specific problem. This is a, a major global problem. Uh, I don't even think we were there yet at that time. But I guess I'll ask you that same question now. How does the virus impact the election? And then the other major movement that's been going on all around us, every city in the U.S. and more and more around the world, is the Black Lives Matter movement, and calling out racial injustice. So I know that's a big question, but tell me how those two major factors ultimately affect this election.
1: Well, it's it's obviously very hard to tell. The coronavirus is certainly not the fault of the Trump administration. It's one of those you know, exogenous shocks to the system that every president has to deal with. But it certainly does undermine the president's central argument to voters, which has been, look what I've done to create jobs, look what I've done to create growth, look what I've done to the stock market. And that's a much harder sell right now, even though, as I say, the coronavirus itself is not his fault. But I think it does mean that voters aren't going to give him a lot of credit for the first few years, and they will be focusing much more on what he's done to manage the crisis, what he's done to manage the reopening of the economy. And I think that is where the focus naturally will be, and that's where the debate will be between the two candidates. So in, in that sense, I think that's where the election will come down to, to sort of you know, the management of the more recent crisis. I think in terms of the Black Lives Matter movement, the issues around police violence, you know, these have been issues that don't go back months, but they go back you know, decades in our history. And I think, you know, obviously what makes it new and fresh is the fact right now that so many cameras are out there and they record these things and, you know, gives fresh impetus to change. That obviously will have a very important part in this election as well. How it plays out, you know, again, the president is focusing more on, you know, supporting police, supporting order restoring order where there have been disruptions. I think Vice President Biden has taken a, a different tack on this. I think it will be an important part in terms of how people vote, but predicting how it's going to you know, move votes from one side to the other, I think it's very hard to say at this stage.
0: Got it, got it. Okay, last question on that. How much credence should we put into the polls currently? So I think some of them that I've seen have Vice President Biden ahead by something like... 12 points at this point. I mean, do you put any credence in those or is it still way too early? And- well,
1: polls are a very good snapshot of what people thought when they were asked the polling questions. So, you know, by the time you and I are talking about them, they're already a few days old, if not a couple weeks old. I think clearly the president has had a rough ride the last month or two on issues around the coronavirus, the new outbreaks, the sense that our response has not been, you know, as smooth or as coordinated as people want it to be. I think also there has been, at least initially, some sense that he hasn't, you know, helped heal racial divisions. But four months is a lo- is a lifetime, is many lifetimes between now and November. And there will be many more news cycles. Again, I don't have to tell you this, but we have this thing called the Electoral College. So the national polling doesn't really matter. It really is state by state and looking at these battleground states. I do think a secondary plot for investors to follow is the course of the Senate elections around the country, because if the Senate tilts back to uh, democratic control, which I think is this, at this stage is sort of a toss-up, you know, there are lots of different things that have to fall into place for that to happen, but it could happen. Didn't look at all likely a few months ago. But if you had a Democratic president with a Democratic House and a Democratic Senate, you could see a lot more movement. Again, I'm not sure it's going to be huge on the taxation and spending side because you've got a lot of centrist and more conservative Democrats who are going to come back to office. But
0: I think that will will also be something that investors are going to want to keep in mind. It'll be a... An interesting next several months, I think, to, to, to follow all of this stuff, to say the least. Just just scream into your heart. <laughs> okay, so now comes the uh, final part of this uh, episode. This is the part that is, I think, going to be more fun for me than it will be for Christopher, unfortunately. But this is the part where I'm going to put him on the spot and ask him 10 questions and ask him to give me one-word answers If you're listening to this right now, Christopher has agreed to to let us publish this and and it has not been left on the cutting room floor. And I have not seen these questions. You have not seen these questions. These are, so blame me for for any of these questions. And then last thing I will say is that uh, Christopher, as he just said, has not seen these questions before. I'm asking him for one word answers. So this is ridiculous on all measures. And therefore, please do not Interpret this as investment advice in any way, shape, or form. I would say these are Christopher's personal opinions when he's put on the spot, unfairly by me. So not investment advice, just to be clear. All right, Christopher, the first three questions relate to the markets and the economy. So the first question for you is, have we already seen the lows in the S&P 500 for this current economic downturn? Yes. Okay, good. Not a... Not a uh, perma bear. Interesting to hear. All right. Second question. You mentioned negative rates earlier in the context of Europe. Will the U.S. Federal Reserve implement negative rates to combat this current downturn? No. Okay. So I interpret that to mean that basically the the, the current set of tools and any other tools that they've got in their toolbox will be enough. They don't need to resort to negative rates. Huh? Absolutely. Last question on markets and the economy. Question number three, will the global economy be in recession territory at the end of 2020?
1: Yes. If if the question is 2021, that's a much harder one, I think. But I think we're we're still going to be digging ourselves out of this one by the end of this year.
0: Okay. The next two questions are under the topic virus. Question number four, will there be an effective vaccine for COVID-19 by the end of Q1 next year? I'm not an
1: epidemiologist, but what I read gives me confidence that yes, we will.
0: Okay, that's good to hear. But that doesn't mean
1: we'll all be getting one by then. It'll take a while for all of us to get the shots.
0: And the other interesting dynamic that I haven't heard a lot of people discuss yet is just what percentage of the population would agree to be vaccinated. Because I think they're potentially could be a lot of concerns around is this actually safe, is it effective, et cetera, et cetera. Exactly right. But again, neither one of us
1: is an epidemiologist.
0: At all, at all. (laughs) Hopefully my disclaimer up front covers that as well. Question number five, true or false, you will board an airplane to travel overseas by the end of the first quarter. True. Okay. That's uh, some of these answers have been encouraging to me so far. Okay. Uh, the next category comes under politics question. Number six, who will vice president Biden pick as his running mate? I don't know.
1: I don't know. He he's got a very, uh, he's got a very tough choice. He's got to pick somebody who's a woman. He said, he's Mm -hmm. got to pick somebody who will be, you know, lead the democratic party into the next transition because he's talked about himself as a transitional candidate. So that's an even smaller group of people. And he has to pick somebody who is going to be exciting and build momentum without making him look too old. So it's an even smaller group of people. So I don't have an answer, but that's the box he has to fill.
0: Yeah. And he will be, I believe this is correct, but I, I believe if he were elected, he would be the oldest incoming president. I think he'll be 78. That's right. And I think that's led to a lot of discussion around... Would he be a one-term president? And therefore, is this pick even that much more important? A look at the prediction polls this morning showed me that Kamala Harris is currently the lead choice, followed by Susan Rice and Val Demings. But I don't know if you put any credence into those type of polls or not, but uh, that's one bit of information.
1: What what I will tell you is somebody who spent a little bit of time with the vice president is that he, the personal relationship will be very important to him, the personal chemistry and making sure that's somebody he feels comfortable with right away. And among that list, I don't really know how that's going to shake out, but that
0: will certainly also come into the mix. Really good point. Question number seven, the election is on November 3rd. Will we have a clear, undisputed winner on November 4th?
1: That's a great question because I think the more we read, more likely than not, uh, if it is at all close, we may be several days without a final result because some states will have more mail in ballots, some states will have more absentee ballots, and those take time to count.
0: Yeah, really good point. All right, you might kill me for this one. Question number eight Who will win the US presidential election? Well, as
1: of today, with all the disclaimers in place, it looks to me like it's uh, a really an uphill battle for President Trump. And as the incumbent, that's, you know, he's got a lot of extra tools at his disposal. He can find a lot of different ways of closing the gap, but I think right now there is a sense that for the reasons we discussed, you know, he's he's got a, an uphill climb both at the national level and state by state. I think that's the most worrying thing for his campaign is that in some of these battleground states that he won Significantly in 2016, uh, he's now lagging. Got it.
0: All right. Last questions before I let you off the hook here. These last two questions are what I'm categorizing as general interest. Question number nine. The baseball season has been shortened to 60 games this year because of the coronavirus. The 2018 world champion Red Sox will go up against the evil empire New York Yankees 10 times this year. How many do you expect the glorious Red Sox to win?
1: Five or six. <laughs> okay. <laughs> they, you know, you're a Red Sox fan. They don't make it easy for you. They, they always um, deliver, but in the hardest, you know, longest, most nail-biting possible way. That's right.
0: That's right. It's not dissimilar from being a Chicago Cubs fan. Sorry to all of our international listeners, if, uh, if these baseball references are too terribly boring. Well, next time, next time we'll talk about cricket. Okay. That, that's a deal. Okay. Last question. Question number 10. After I have put you on the spot like this, will you come back and join me again on a future episode of Streaming Income?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. You just call and I'll be there.
0: <laughs> I will Zoom. I will Zoom you. All right. Well, Christopher, thank you for being such a good sport here. I know I've put you on the spot with several of these questions, but it's great to get your honest and timely take on all these important matters. I think all of these subjects that we talked about today are very much going to be in the front of investors' minds over the coming six months. So it's great to get your views. So Christopher, thank you so much. It's a real pleasure. Thanks, Greg. Speak soon. Thanks for listening to episode 15 of season two of Streaming Income. Remember to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so that you are the first to hear about our latest episodes. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.